Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 640, honoring the life of my friend, uh, Charlie King, um, who passed uh, about a week ago. Um, where, where do I begin? This episode, um, this interview with Charlie um, took place uh, a couple of years ago. And um, it's, it's, I wanted to do, to do something to, I don't know, express how much I cared for Charlie and how much I loved him. And I think there's really no better way to do it than to air this episode so that people who didn't know him um, could get a sense of who he, who he was and the face of addiction what it looks like. I think it's so easy to, to drive by somebody who's homeless and just think, uh, you know, they're just making terrible decisions, they're immature, you know, whatever, and have that be the sum of how you look at them. And Charlie was such a complex person. You know, he had anger issues. He could be violent, but underneath that was this scared, beautiful, vulnerable kid. Uh, some nights we would just talk for, you know, endlessly on the on the phone, and I felt really privileged that Charlie would reach out to me when he was struggling. You know, either he was going back to jail, or he was in a relationship that had too much drama in it, or he'd relapsed and was doing drugs again. But there was this, there there was just that. There's no other word a a, a childlike sweetness to him. Um, that that just touched something so deep inside me. And um, when I got the news that he passed last week, um, he was found alone in his apartment. And um, from what I'm told, there was a rolled up dollar bill uh, next to him. So, you know, I'm, I guess the logical thought would be that he had overdosed either intentionally or otherwise because uh, he was struggling to get sober again and you know what whatever it was that led to his passing um ultimately i i don't think that's as important as um to me as just wanting to share with people that beautiful quality that that Charlie had that spirit of his that that um, went beyond him being this guy who could be angry and fly off the handle. Uh, I think his interview is is compelling and touching, and uh, and I'm feeling I haven't cried yet, and. I'm resisting the urge to judge myself for not crying. Maybe it's because I'm on meds and I don't cry as easily, but Charlie touched me really, really deeply. He was somebody that, you know, when when I would see him in a meeting or he would come over to talk or we'd play guitar together, um, I don't know, there was just this this connection that, that we had. Um, and I loved him. I loved him. I'm going to read a couple of surveys. Um, the once we go to the interview with Charlie, um, actually, I'm, I'll say a couple of things after the interview with Charlie. But we're going to do 
um, going to air the surveys that were read with this episode when it originally aired a couple of couple of years ago. I don't know why I'm like I'm preparing you for this as if it, you won't be able to handle it if you're not ready for this. Oh God, do I hate when I over-explain things? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Empty Pinata. And uh, about his depression, he writes, if I feel good, then something is wrong. About his ADD, the thrill of getting a new idea without the energy to follow through on it. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. About his compulsive eating, I make myself full to escape the pain of feeling empty. About his love addiction, I love the idolized version of you because I can't love myself. About his OCD, I hyper-focus on the things I can control to control the fear of the things I cannot. Oh my God, those are so good. Thank you for those. This is from the Fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Wild Honey Blossoms. And she writes, I fear losing control of my mind. I'm not certain how, maybe through a psychotic break, as the stress and traumas just become too much, or through dementia and or Alzheimer's like my grandma. The inability to think clearly is part of it, but the real fear is my actions because of that unclear thinking hurting and burdening my family. I can't imagine myself untethered from reality. I often hope that if that ever became my life, that my family would take me for one of my favorite hikes and I would get, quote, lost, unquote. Wow, that is heavy. That is such a heavy thing to picture. Maybe they could go halfway and take you to Ikea and just cut you loose and take off. This is uh, from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Carrie, and she writes, I tell myself God created me exactly the way he wanted with all my perfect imperfections. It's been a struggle with negativity in my life, from the household I grew up in to my current job now for decades, to friends, family, etc. I tell myself I'll be okay and accept that oftentimes a hot cup of coffee and a good song is as good as it gets. I love that so much. I love that so much. That is a condensed, real version, doable version to me of what mental health accomplishments, managing mental health can look like in a way that's attainable. You know, when I was first newly sober or newly medicated, you know, in therapy, seeing a psychiatrist. Um, I set my sights so high that I was going to enjoy everything that I was doing and I would always be excited and I would be happy. And eventually I realized that that's unrealistic. And the, the realistic goal that I aim for is to, f- is to try to feel peace no matter what's going on around me. And if I feel passion or joy, hey, you know, bonus. But Anyway, uh, this is from the Fears survey filled out by Sad Mom, and she writes, I fear the stepmother to my teenage daughter will not stop with the idea that she needs to be involved with co-parenting when my daughter has two perfectly good parents that love her dearly. My fear ultimately is my daughter will will isolate me and go to her dad and the stepmom. They have substantially more money than me, which is difficult in itself. The stepmother is fairly new to my daughter's life, 
as of a little over three years ago. To me, this makes me feel horrible. I've only met this woman twice in person, but the only thing she and my ex-husband are focused on is me letting this woman parent my kid. How about instead of, quote, parenting, unquote, be my daughter's friend and confidant, and please don't become an official parent. By the way, I have an amazing kid. Seriously, a great person, especially for a teenager. The emails and texts they write me make me feel like I'm inadequate. I just can't believe this is happening. Please, anyone out there trying to be a parent, uh, trying to parent a kid, and you're a step-parent, especially a teenager, let the kid's real parents do that job. If anyone is wondering, we have split custody and everything was very easygoing for the eight years after the divorce. Now it's just hard and sad. Well, I am sorry that, that you're that you are going through that. And um, I'm just going to share some thoughts with you uh, that, that I had as I'm reading this. Um, not a parent, so uh, don't, don't take this as uh, me saying, here's what you need to do. Um, but just some things to, to um, consider. You write, she's a great kid. Um, that's good. <laughs> I think all that sounds really simple, but remind yourself it would be different if if this kid was fucked up and you know her life was in danger and she was in and out of psych wards and there were acute crises going on all the time. Um, the, the one thing I know for sure is that you can never go wrong with being there for your kid and and understanding trying to find out what their needs are so that you can meet them and also understanding where you end and other people begin uh, i'm sure the mother mothering instinct is to want to control the way in which she's raised but you can only do that with the way that the input that that you have you don't have control over your ex-husband or his new wife. And I think trying to understand uh, what is your what your projected fear of what might happen from what is actually going on day to day. And, and remind yourself that she's she's a smart kid. And um and you can never go wrong with being diplomatic when interacting. Even if the urge is to want to lash out at them, that will not help anything. Um, but I imagine how all of this could could give you a knot in your stomach because it's your kid. And you love her and you don't want to see your relationship with her be damaged. So sending you some, some love. Uh, this was an email I got from a listener named Angeline, and she writes, um, Hi, Paul. Love your show, and I love you, but had to write based on the latest show. My thought, for what it's worth, is the show is so much richer when your guests have done work on themselves. I don't know what age or stage Michelle E. is at, but it sounds like she is still operating out of her defenses. Her beat BPD mom is her, quote, best friend, unquote, and she doesn't see the problem with that, question mark. Her abusive boyfriend is suddenly great because she changed herself. Gah! Exclamation point. So frustrating. You tried to challenge her, but it was to no avail. Sorry if this sounds harsh. Just I love the shows where guests have better insight. Thank you for sharing that. I, 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 wrote, uh, I wrote her back and said, I, I get where you're coming from. And thanks for, thanks for weighing in uh, on that. 
this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Uh, this is filled out by a, a person called Sherry. And she writes, how do you reconcile sexual abuse amongst family and know who to believe? My oldest sister, the oldest of five, came back to our apartment as a young woman and announced our father had raped slash molested her for years when she was young. My mother stood by and did slash said nothing. My father called her a liar. I tend to believe my sister and made a point of never being alone with him, even jumping out of a moving car in elementary school. Our parents are long gone. I'm in my 50s, my sister is in her 70s, and she still brings it up. My sister is now dying of cancer, and she is so brutally negative about everything. I have a hard time being around her, especially now that my own husband has terminal cancer. I've put it in a suitcase on the shelf, but any clarity ever? Question mark. I don't know. I don't know if if you'll ever have any clarity on on this, um, but my thoughts as I read this, was um, that we can support people while also protecting our battery from being drained. And sometimes that support is just having a brief phone call with them and say, hey, I'm a little overwhelmed right now, but I just want to let you know I love you and I'm thinking of you. And uh, when I I get my battery recharged, uh, I'll, I'll be back in touch with you. And Especially now that your father is gone, um, you might ask yourself, uh, would it, would it, would my sister appreciate me telling her that I believe her? Maybe you already have, but I, it doesn't sound like any harm could be done by you supporting her. Um, again, it sounds like a really complicated situation, but those are just some. And I'm so sorry about your husband. Oh my God, you got so much on your plate right now. Um, sending you, sending you a, a hug. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Boogie Monster, and I believe that you rented uh, the space under my bed when I was a kid, and you owe some back rent, my friend. Uh, she asks, wanted to clarify, oh, actually, she says, wanted to clarify from last week about the suggested outro with music. I meant do an outro with your music and the guitar. I've heard you play it behind surveys, but it's too distracting. However, I love your playing. I was suggesting that it plays as you are ending the show. No clips needed. I got you now. I understand. Thank you for that. And <laughs> she writes, and thank you for casting me to hell, but I'm already there. I would not be a devout listener otherwise. But when I said, go ahead, do it, I meant play guitar behind my survey to distract me again, hearty har har. A joke missed due its lack of humor. Thanks again. Uh, that, that, no, I, I missed that. I, that's actually very funny. Um, thank you for that. And uh, I'm sorry that you uh, are stuck in hell. So I'm going to, on my own dime, I'm going to send an Uber and bring you, bring you back from hell. This is uh, a snapshot from someone's struggle in a sentence survey. This is filled out by Blissful Betty Wannabe. And about her anxiety, she writes, My anxiety feels as if a ball of slithering snakes or tousling, tousling? How do you pronounce it? T-O-U-S-L-I-N-G. All of a sudden, I'm blanking. Tousling kittens take up residence in my stomach, and the only way to calm them is to vent to someone. 
all the while building anxiety that I will burden my friends and family with my venting. It's like a relighting birthday candle that just won't go out. Wow. Wow. That's such a, uh, such a good image. And I don't mean good in a, in a good way, good in, in its description. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Now get 20% off every IQ Bar product plus free shipping when you text MENTAL to 64000. I'm a big fan of IQ Bar. They sent me a variety pack with six different flavors and uh, I love them. I love them. IQ Bar is the only bar optimized for your brain and body. Packed with brain nutrients, plant protein and fiber, all with next to no sugar or net carbs. Super clean level and delicious. IQ Bar is the number one brain and body protein bar in the U.S. with over 10,000 five-star reviews and hundreds of thousands of happy customers. Now get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text MENTAL to 64000. Get your discount. Text MENTAL to 64000. That's MENTAL. To 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Um, the theme this month is uh, learning about yourself. And um, I learned so many things about myself, uh, not only in my support groups, but in, in therapy. And... Um, you know, the guidance of a good therapist for me has been instrumental in learning about myself in a non-judgmental way. Yeah, sometimes I learn things about myself that I'm not crazy about, but the way in which I learn about them, I think, has so much to do with my ability to take it in and, you know, not hate myself or judge myself, but to have more clarity on how to act in the in the future. Uh, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And please include the slash metal part so they know that you came from the podcast. And then finally, uh, one last survey before we get to that uh, interview with Charlie. Um, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, please notice me, Paul Senpai. Uh, senpai, I believe, is a Japanese uh, word that means like uh, older authority figure and about uh, his anxiety he writes everyone in the world hates me they just don't know it yet hey buddy uh, charlie king who i've known for about 13 years yes indeed we um we met at a support group um you've been sober a while now like what 11 years two 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 and some change oh okay i couldn't have been more wrong i got married and uh uh it's just a long story. She was hiding the fact she was taking opiates, and I had a huge patch of arthritis on my low back and tried one, and, you know, most people would say, I need to get a prescription first. <laughs> Not us. No. Not us. I just didn't have a mental defense, so I had to start my time over. 
One of the reasons I wanted to uh, talk to you is we've known each other over the years. Sometimes we don't see each other for uh, a number of months, but when we do reconnect, uh, I don't know, I feel like there's always this, um, I don't know, this connection between the the two of us. Yeah. I've always been... Um, I've always been drawn to people who uh, can get vulnerable and be honest about what it is that they're struggling with. And early on, you opened up to me about your life and about your struggles with using violence as a solution. Yes. Um, what do you remember about that time period? Um, it would have been the mid-2000s. Mm. And you, you, I think we're still in the midst of occasionally, you know, somebody disrespecting you and you uh, get, getting personally. into a fight and then being arrested. I, I was, uh, I felt hopeless. I felt there was, there was something I could not control and I would just snap. And I felt like I was going to get locked away somewhere and in gladiator school and, never get the get the help that i needed and what's the longest stint you've done in jail or prison um 45 days in jail mm -hmm. yeah. that was in 1982 but as as for my anger uh, i always got away except for the last the last one and i did I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail mm -hmm. for that one. And were these uh, just men you'd never met before? Strangers? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one wasn't. One was a domestic on my wife, uh -huh. which in which I pushed her out of the door, and she scraped her head on the doorway, and I locked out, and I, and I didn't know that she bumped her head, and she called the police, and they had me face down on the carpet and took me away. So that was a domestic. Everything I have ever done was is a misdemeanor because after one punch, I, I realized what I was doing. I said, oh, my God, what am I doing this for? And I always stopped. Mm -hmm. So what determines whether it becomes a misdemeanor or a felony is the amount of damage you inflict on another person. Mm -hmm. If you just beat someone down and really hurt them, injure them gravely, it's a felony. It's, it's a felony felony battery. And so you've never had mm -hmm. a felony battery? No. It's always just been one punch, something like that. But the the anger and the, and the craziness was always there. I mean, I was the guy who would get out of his car in the middle of traffic and go back to the other car and, and you know, mm -hmm. and get him to try to get him to come out or pound on the window and stuff. And I've actually had people that knew me that just happened to be at a car wash or something and and yelled out charlie what are you doing and it's just snapped me out of it i looked around and i was in the middle of the street going after this person in a car and i just turned around and looked looked around and i said oh my god i'm gonna get back in my car now and it just he just snapped me out of it so it's almost like you go into a an altered state an like altered a, like state. a switch flips can't control it could or i couldn't control it and it was a hopeless feeling, hopeless, because... You had so much shame when you started opening up to me. And I think that's one of the things that, um, A, interested in, interested me in you as a person, but B, also uh, made me feel close to you because you were so gentle in your self-reflection 
and desire to change. And it was such a contrast with, uh, you know, Charlie is a, a physically, though you're not that tall, you're, uh, he's a physically fit guy with tattoos all over his arms. Um, and just that, that contrast to me, um, was so, it just always struck me as so complex. It was. I'm not the, the kind of guy that likes to go on and on about himself. I mean, when I'm, but I, I, it, I this is about me, so I'm going to go on a little bit about myself. And I was born a real sweet person who, who was naturally outgoing. And at the age of five, I would introduce myself to people and shake hands and speak right up and, and say, well, my, what a lovely house you have. And just this, I was just a little adult. You know, I, I, I went to a new neighborhood and at five years old and, and 19, that would have been two, three, four, five, six. That was have been 1967. And I just walk up and down the neighborhood knocking on doors, introducing myself as Charles King. And do you have someone my age I could play with? And I knocked on all these doors and I finally knocked on the right one. And she said, yeah, I do. And she pushed him out and uh, he was my age and uh, we're still friends today. But the, uh, the abuse, the, the, the physical abuse and, uh, and my, my, ver- my vision of love, what love is, was so skewed and so distorted because um, the people that bring you into the world, if they're hitting you, and then they're then they're pretending then they're acting like they're your friend and then they start hitting you again and they act like your friend. Your your vision of love is going to be very distorted. Give me some examples. Of- uh, getting hit. This was not um, beat up. This was corporal punishment. This was this was corporal punishment. So it was very. Uh, but give me give me some examples. You know <clears throat> uh, of things that you experienced. That, um, kind of being all that taken down in a dark basement that was unfinished it didn't have it had studs it had like you know no walls just studs a dark scary basement and uh, being hit on the back of the legs with a broomstick being beaten in the back of the legs with a broomstick and not really knowing why and then coming back coming up and crying on the couch and i mean i can't imagine doing that to a six-year-old or a seven-year-old you know, I, I just I, I can't imagine doing that now. But that's what was both parents were doing that. And mom had a riding crop. Dad had a, a broomstick handle. And um, so when people that are supposed to love you are, are doing that to you, your vision of love is skewed. And so when I was nine, my mother ceased to be able to be a mother and she went over the edge and she never got her sanity back. She went over the edge and she was crying or she was catatonic or she was laughing or sitting there like i said she would be catatonic she wouldn't speak for weeks and and she wasn't my mother anymore so after nine years old been diagnosed with anything schizophrenia depression and uh, people talk about depression and and, and i've experienced depression where you know you're depressed but this kind of depression was where you she couldn't talk it was more it was a huge depression so schizophrenic where she would talk to herself and hear things and, and thought God and people were telling her what to do. And was there no cure for that? Was there any desire on her part to get better or get help? She was gone. There was, there was nothing left. She was just reduced to, um, a child and certainly couldn't be a mother, but she tried. Yes, there was. Yes, she did try. <clears throat> she tried to pull it together, and she would. Uh, and I was angry as a as a seven year old and an eight year old. I was angry, and I would send her to the store to buy me toys. And 
she would come back and I'd say, that's not right. Go back and get this. And, you know, um, she had no boundaries. She was just reduced to it like a child. And so I was so angry. You would send her to the store? Right. To buy me things. Because I was so, I was just, I was angry that she was not a mother. She had no boundaries. I had no discipline at all. I, I was not disciplined anymore. She was, there was. So it went from you being beaten by her being to her not guiding you, exactly. even badly guiding you. No not guidance guiding whatsoever. You. So it was from getting, you know, hit, getting corporal punishment all the time to nothing. To being ignored, completely ignored, abandoned, and where uh, was your father? A workaholic, always working. And uh, soon after he he left the state to start a company, he was ambitious and he wanted to uh, have his own company. So he left the state and started up this company and left me and my sister with my mom who was very sick. And so I had nothing. I had no parental guidance. No. And, and was your father aware of the severity of the situation? Uh, in the beginning, I'm sure he was. Uh, yeah, I think so. But he was driven. And, uh, you know, I was born to two parents who had no right to have parents. They had no parenting skills whatsoever. To have um, kids, you mean? Yeah, they yeah. had no parenting skills. They didn't yeah. know what they were doing. They, they just knew how to inflict pain and uh, scare you. And my friend, who I had knocked on his door and met him, he was my age, had two parents that had were, had um, had great parenting skills. His father was a um, was a psychiatrist, and his mother was studying psychology, and so they both had amazing parenting skills. And they the contrast was absolutely amazing. I would I would come over to his house like a wild Indian. <laughs> Foul mouthed and 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 just just wound up to the hilt, and his mother would say, "Charlie, we don't talk that way here." And say, "Say, do you want to take off your coat? You're going to get overheated because you're you're a little you're you're going fast. You're going too fast here." Were you manic? As a I kid? was maybe a little bit. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. wound up, really, really wound up, foul mouthed, had no uh, no guidance. And um, and had you uh, become violent? Yeah, point? there was there was schoolyard brawls, and as a as a fourth grader, fourth and fifth grader, I had fighting skills. I had body blocks, and I, I punch and kick. I, I yeah, I had a lot of fights as a young young. Youngster. Would you generally start them? What would what would set you off? Do you, hmm. can you recall any? To just kind of give us some more detail of can't just just no I can't recall it's been so long but I remember uh, having some moves having definitely having real moves fighting moves you know punching going down to my knees blocking someone tripping them um, getting on top and you know and what do you remember feeling when you would do that you know what what happened was I would always make friends with the with the people that I got in fights with. Was, a afterwards. Mm -hmm, it was like over in a flash, and I became friends with them. And um, when I moved, my dad finally got the company started, and I moved from Denver to Tulsa. I moved, and it was in sixth grade. The biggest kid in the school didn't like me because I had red hair, and I was a little quirky. I was, I was a little odd, but I had red hair, and so he didn't like me. He wanted to fight me. So my first day of school, the big football player, a big linebacker kid, was you know punching his punching his hands and his fists, looking at me across the classroom, you know, like it's going to be you and me after class. And when school let out, we went down the street and I remember jumping up in the air and punching him several times as a, as a, as a, as a 12 year old. And he was the guy, he was huge. And for me, and I remember jumping up in the air and hitting him and, um, I won. It's because I had the heart and, uh, we became close friends. 
we became, after that, we became, we became very close. Do you feel like you need to punch me for us to become closer? No. <laughs> no. Uh, um, I, 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 uh, I thought, and the same thing when I, when I stopped using drugs and alcohol uh, as a way to medicate, after a few years went by, uh, this anger started coming up. And the, the drugs and alcohol kept it in check. But once I got clean and sober, it started coming up. And so here I was seven, eight, nine years sober and getting into fights. And so give me, um, before we get into your uh, drug years, um, let's go back to childhood and adolescence and give me some moments, some little vignettes uh, that you think kind of paint a picture for the listener of who you were like, what your life was like, how you viewed the world, anything like that. Well, as a youngster, as, as nine, ten years old, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Looking back, you know, as a, as a as a child, you have to just deal with what you're given. And in therapy, I was talking to a therapist, and she said, "Charlie, there is no way in the world you could have processed that stuff." You know, I've seen your mother go crazy and uh, crying all the time, or coming on to me, or um, what do you mean coming on you sexually? A little bit, telling me I was cute and getting close to me and putting her arms around me and you know kissing my cheeks and telling me you know, mm -hmm. and, and it just it was it was very and creepy. That must and have been really uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. But when that happened, I was actually a teenager, so I knew that she was insane, and I, I knew, but it was still I still remember it, but. Um, so having trying to process that kind of stuff as a child, you can't. You can't process it. You just have to push it down. So I, I've spent a lot of time alone. I, I walked to the store alone. I walked up and down the neighborhoods at five years old alone. No, I don't, no, I don't see any five-year-olds doing that today. Um, so I, had, I was born into crazy. I mean, my, my mother and sister were both had, didn't know how to show love. My father didn't know how to relate to me at all. So... You know, I didn't, my vision of love was, was distorted. So later in life, I spent years and I'm still doing it, getting women who, who aren't uh, emotionally available, just like my mother and my sister and my father. So, yeah, some of the earliest things I can remember, getting hit and not knowing why, crying, um, wondering why, why someone that loved me would do that. And it turned around, it came around to bite me because... Um, I was always known as the guy that'll, that would punch you out, you know, and, but when later in life, when I stopped using the substances, it just got to where I, and I, then I met you in the, in the mid nineties, the mid two thousands, I felt completely helpless and completely, um, hopeless. I remember hopeless. you went back out and started and I think you were you were smoking crack right that was your thing that was then. my thing and you disappeared for a while and I remember all of a sudden you showed up again and you one of your front teeth had been knocked out yeah and I just remember thinking that's not good <laughs> I don't know if I need to ask Charlie how he's doing <laughs> I remember that how that tooth get knocked out how that that's a funny story because at a crack house uh, I was wrapping up my rocks in a little piece of paper, plastic. And if in this crack house, if you played with your rocks too much, you were they stole your drugs and threw you out. You were known as a tweaker. So if you started tweaking too much, they would like take your drugs and beat you up and throw you out. So I was wrapping it up in some 
plastic bag when when a grocery bag used to be made out of it. And I, w- I would pull it with my teeth, and all of a sudden, my it popped out my tooth. My front tooth went bouncing on the carpet, and everybody put their pipes down and looked at me and said, "Was that your tooth?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah." And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> 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 left. So that's the story about the tooth. And How had your tooth become so loose? Was it a fake tooth? It at was that a point? fake tooth. Yeah, it was. It was. It had a little post, yeah. and it was a cap with a little post into the root. Yeah. And I just pulled on it just right, and it snapped that post. How had the tooth originally? My sister. We were playing, and my sister took my head and just pushed it down on the table and cracked my tooth in half. Mm. Yeah. My sister was a um, a very inspirational extraordinary person and who who could ex- inspire people and people named their babies after her she has so much passion my sister did in the 70s listening to all that great music of the 70s driving around in a vw smoking uh joints and my sister was extraordinary and passionate and inspired people and she was my hero because she was my older sister and i i would sneak into her room and listen to Derek and the dominoes and the rolling stones and 10 years after and and James Taylor and all the and, and all the great bands of the seventies and she was my hero. And and do you remember why she put your face into the edge of a I table? I remember she was playing and she was Oh, so it wasn't like a No, it wasn't active. a violent uh, okay. no, she was just playing and just kinda of pushed me. I don't know, she pushed me down, I don't know. Is, is your sister no longer alive? She my sister is dead. She's yeah. passed away. And that's been one of the hardest things ever because um Oliver passion that she had for life and for music for everything slowly slowly slipped away as As she descended into alcohol as she descended into alcohol and drugs yeah and then i knew that she was an addict and she got in control of my mother's estate when my mother committed suicide her parents had um had a considerable uh estate with uh, apartments cash uh, a nice house in san clemente by the ocean who, and who had uh, my mother's parents? Oh, they, I see. They came okay. from Scotland and they and they opened a toy store, and so they had they had a nice they had a nice she had a nice inheritance. Well, she got herself in control of that money, and okay. when she got in control of my mother's estate, she got power of attorney and the houses and the money and the stocks and everything. I went into a support group to get uh, some, some to get some relief from the way I was feeling because I was I was powerless. I could not, I could do nothing. You know, uh, she got it all. I got so kind nothing. of a co- codependence uh, yeah. themed support group. Yeah. Okay. It would give me some skills on how to deal with being powerless over somebody else mm-hmm. who is somebody else's addiction. And lo and behold, you know, she uh, ended up. Her boyfriend was a drug smuggler or something, and and she somehow he attacked her, and she got a huge settlement. And she put that settlement money in with them, all the estate money that she got from my mother, and she had quite a bit. And so she had a nice three-level house in Laguna Beach right across from PCH, you know, with an ocean view in Laguna, which was – and I was just staying in, in sober livings, you know, bunk beds. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and then I had an apartment, a little one-bedroom apartment. And um, I remember uh, your apartment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what – how did you cope with the feelings of that? Because I remember you talking about it. Yeah. But I want to hear. Uh, I want to hear you share with the listener what that was like, um, having to uh, deal with the powerlessness of somebody who had 
done that yeah to you it was a sneaky thing you know and she knew what she was doing she was an addict and so she got in control of it all and got the house and and then moved her heroin dealer in as her boyfriend so he was just well that's just polite he was a heroin dealer I mean, so yeah she moved yeah, him in it would be rude to he, leave him yeah so he was just he was just a leech he just used her and together they shot heroin in that nice house in Laguna Beach but it was it was really hard because I was powerless and she would she would try to help me here and there, you know, when I needed money or why. And and going down to her house for Christmases and stuff, you know. Wow, her, how hard was that? Yeah, she had a really nice house with like a spiral staircase and a nice convertible in the driveway and, and, and the dealer living there. And and she was gaining weight because heroin is slows your metabolism down. And so she was gaining weight. and But she was really happy, you know, because she was blissfully, you know, high on heroin and... Uh, it was it was really hard, really hard to. How did she technically cut you out of the estate? Did she, while your mom was alive, did she get her to rewrite the will, or what did she do? Um, no, when my mother had, let's see, my mother was alive. My mother, my mother committed suicide. My her parents um, begged my father, who was a, who was an excellent businessman, begged him to help them with their estate to help them organize it and and, it was, and he ignored my father ignored them and had wanted nothing to do with my mother's parents to help them so she my grandmother put it into my uncle's name who was my mother's brother mm-hmm. who was not uh, not sane he he was a burned out old alcoholic who wasn't uh in his right mind mm-hmm. and so my sister capitalized on that she knew that some that uncle bob bob needed someone to take care of him so she got power of attorney to take care of bob who the money went to so the money was actually bob's but she had access to it because she had a power of attorney she was taking care of him I see. so you know her and bob had that house and and uh and how so, did your sister die um my sister never got any help for uh alcohol and drugs and so my sister died a very slow death um she went from the uh the three-level house in Laguna Beach to on the streets of Santa Ana. And one of the first things that happened, well, not one of the first things, but what one of the things that happens to you when you live in on the streets is um, your health and your teeth because you're not brushing your teeth, you're not flossing, you're not eating the right foods to provide vitamins for dental support. And that's why homeless people have bad teeth because they're not eating right, they're not brushing and taking care of your teeth. And and, so, and especially if you're doing drugs that... Yeah. that kills the blood flow right. to your gums and so her teeth started to go and uh she would pop up in jail i mean she would she would she always told me when my uncle died that i would get uh something you know a, a substantial amount of money and when he died she never let me know he died and i never got to go to his funeral i don't even think he had a funeral so uh she disappeared when when she left that house she went to another house and just disappeared and then became homeless and lived on the, lived on the streets and doing heroin and crack and and so she was introduced to recovery programs and never it never never took with her it just bounced off she just didn't absorb it so i got to see what happens to someone who never gets in as versus as opposed to me who gets in and has gone out a few times for a couple of months and got back i never gave myself any credit for 
coming back and forth. But now that I've seen what happened to her, I see what happens. There is a huge difference in someone who gets in and goes out and gets in and goes out than someone who never gets in because she never got in and she died a horrible death. It was slow. When someone dies of alcoholism, no one is surprised because everyone knows what's going on with that person. So she looked, she was 57 and she looked 75 and her teeth were rotted out and brown and she got my dad to, to pay for dentures so she got some dentures and she looked really really old and um thought that people were hacking into her phone and she was not in her right mind and i tried to get her into into halfway houses and stuff and she couldn't be anywhere for a long without being asked to leave because she was mentally unstable and she would just rub people the wrong way and just she knew how to get under people's skin and so she she couldn't stay they would have to ask her to leave and uh i tried everything to get her the message and in the end she died alone and scared and unable to connect with anyone any of her old friends couldn't connect with them and not nothing none of her old friends just alone and was living in my old bedroom with my father who my father's a recluse who actually works but doesn't take care of his house, doesn't have any food in the refrigerator, doesn't lives in a lives in a broken down, dirty, disgusting house. Which So what happened to him financially? I don't know. He 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 owns a pool company and does fairly well, but he just he doesn't care about the house. He doesn't care about anything but pools and dating his girlfriend. Actually just pools. He thinks my father fell into the trap of thinking that his what he does defines him. So owning this pool company gives him his identity. And so when I went back for my reunion in 2015, no, 2010, for my 30 year reunion, I saw the house was, uh, had, had two inches of dust on the carpet and there was a little trail where he walked from the living room into the bedroom. And there was, it was dirt and filth all over the carpet. The, the pool. See, this is the house that he had built when we were in, when I was in high school. It was a it was a beautiful, wonderful house with a pool in the back and all this futuristic furniture and a barbecue and everything. And the pool was brown water, half full. Um, the the house was a was a shambles, and he was eating TV dinners, um, sitting there alone in the quiet, eating TV dinners alone by himself. And um, I went back. Anytime I ever went back to see him, there was no food in the refrigerator and really no reason to come back because I, I hadn't seen him in years. And I would we would go out to breakfast the next morning and he would just put the paper up between us and read the paper. And I would say, don't you want to know what, what's been going on with me? Don't you want to know me? And he really didn't. You know, he, he had no no interest in me, actually. So I, I knew some of your story, but... Yeah. I didn't know the depths of the um, abandonment. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want to know me. And I hadn't seen him in 10 years. I moved to L.A. He was still in. Um, then he let the house go. And he. I asked him, I said, how can you live in filth? He says, I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm, I'm perfectly happy. So I went back in 2010 for my 30-year reunion. That was seven years ago. And I actually cleaned up, mowed the yard, vacuumed up all the there – was, there was seriously two inches of dust and cleaned his kitchen and stuff and um and what did you feel when you went back and you saw all this oh, and you were man. walking around 
it's just a complete disconnect. I mean, here's a guy who who disconnected from me, but he's also disconnected. I mean, who wants to live in filth? I mean, who who would? Who but would, what did you feel? What did I feel? A little empathy, because this is not something new. This is all my my entire life. It was he was disconnected from me, and when you know when you're a little boy and your mother's sick and you're you're struggling, you're, you're going to want to get on one knee and say what's going on with you son how are you doing and you know that was ne that never happened you know so i felt empathy for him and just felt a complete disconnect did you feel anything towards yourself no i'm i'm still working on that i'm still working on processing um the things that happened as a little boy and as a as a teenager growing up without with the mother who was gone. I mean, but I can't it, just me hearing this story. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through all of that yeah. shit. I mean, it's, well, the thing is I, I, my mother suffered after when she got sick and, and when I was nine, she suffered, she cried and cried and, became catatonic and suffered and suffered and took all these drugs that made her just twist and writhe and none of them drugs did any good at all. But I watched her suffer for, for many years. She finally bought a gun at Walmart and just laid down on the bed and shot herself. And uh, I mean, I understand that because it Where was, were you? Uh, I was in the, I actually had actually done a stint in jail for a robbery and started to get my life together and started going to college. And I was studying in college and I was getting good grades and I was, looking to take over my dad's pool company and, and things were looking up you know i had a girlfriend and i was i would i would i was still smoking some pot but i would smoke pot after i studied late okay. at, at night so it was it was in i was in community college and i was at the at the library studying doing making grades doing well you know my whole all my high school years were spent in a haze of drugs acid everything i mean okay. i was so stoned in high school and junior high so now it's my time to shine so i was I had just done some time in jail and was turning myself around and my mother she just she got she just was tired of suffering and I completely understand I completely understand you said so. she got a shotgun she laid down she got a 38 pistol from Walmart okay. and loaded it and just laid down and, and shot herself and um, my sister found her my sister called my girlfriend my girlfriend called me I went straight over there and we, we both found her together and um, my sister had called me, and then she, my girlfriend, and she called the she called the, the police. And so, we were in there. My mother had blown herself off the bed in between the bed and the nightstand, and um, I was trying to pick her up and put her back on the bed. And there was quite a bit of um, blood and brains on the wall and on the on the uh, on the carpeting by the bed. And I was trying to pick her up and put her back on the bed. And the uh, the the medical the the coroner or whoever he was a medical examiner guy bear hugged me and pulled me out of the room and i was so mad because i wanted to be with my mother and he said dead people have rights you you can't you got to let us do that and he explained to me and i'll never forget that i wanted to be with my mom i wanted to be the one to pick her up and put her back on the bed but so my my way of helping was to scrape up you know some of the some of the brains and the and the skull matter and stuff off the carpet and and try to put it in the trash and stuff in my and my dad and, and the another, another police officer stopped me from doing that. You know, that was my way of trying to help. Um, 
But when my mother passed and she did that, uh, it just that threw me. It threw me big time. And I, you know, I drank and ended up moving to Huntington Beach with a lot of my buddies in Tulsa that were all skaters. Be- before we move on to that, I, I just want to go back to um, that moment and because I imagine the listener is probably feeling and thinking what I am right now, which is, holy fuck, holy fuck, that is a lot to process. Yeah. How, how, how? I think that's what, that, that's what made me a, a complete anger and rage aholic is that because I, I never really processed it. I, I drank and then, um, and you would have been how old at that? At that I was time? 21. I was 20, 21. Yeah. And, um, you hadn't smoked crack yet. Mm-mm, no, I moved um, to Huntington beach. I put everything in the back of a pickup and moved to where my friends were living in Huntington beach and stayed with them. And, uh, and it was then that I got introduced to cocaine. And back then it was, you had to buy powder cocaine and, and you had to cook it up with either uh, ammonia or um, baking soda. Mm. And so the minute I tried that, yeah. But I, I keep thinking if my mother hadn't have done that, I would still be in, I would have been in college and I would have moved to a university and I would have gotten an education. But I, I'm not placing any blame on her because I'm, I know why she did what she did because she suffered for 13 years and a person can only take so much and and there's no helping her. There was no helping her. She was a devout Jehovah's witness and she would spend so much time at the kingdom hall and my dad would routinely have the elders of the congregation over to the house for them to explain what they were putting into her head, what they were telling her, what was going on with my mother. And he had, you know, the, the, the elders of the congregation there regularly trying to hold them accountable for for the stuff that they were putting in her to her head she was trying to hold your dad accountable no he was my dad was trying to hold the uh, i see the, the elders of the jehovah's witness congregation accountable for what they were what the programming they were giving her for instance what what was some of the program well that that armageddon was coming and that unless we were jehovah's witnesses we would not be in the new system and so that besides besides the uh the the schizophrenia and the uh the, the terrible depression she suffered um then she also had the notion that we weren't going to be saved that we were not going to be with her in the new system and that added a whole nother dimension of pain to her life and um she was convinced that we wouldn't be in the new system and, and that armageddon was coming soon and that's what the Jehovah's witnesses teach and so my dad you know, I would have them over and hold them accountable and say, what are you telling her? And what, you know, that's just what I remember. It's been 35 or 40 years, but that's, I remember that. And, uh, but I got my first hit of free base cocaine after she did that. And I was spending, I was just in a spin spinning. And my first one, I was, I was an addict for my first one. There was no. What do you remember feeling or thinking with that first hit? This is, this is. I found home. I found it. Yeah, this is it. I found it, you know. And my girlfriend at the time, my beautiful girlfriend who moved out to uh, Huntington Beach from Tulsa with, with me, um, tried one to try to, try to puff, you know, and then that was, she tried it once, you know, and she would drink a little with me, but 
It wasn't soon after that she, she didn't like it. Well, she just didn't didn't. Yeah, she wasn't an addict. Like I didn't didn't make her world go around. But she had to leave me. This woman was a woman that loved me. That that came out from Tulsa with me to be with me, and she loved me. And she said, "You're in my heart, but I have to leave you now." And I was known as the junkie. You know, back then people didn't really understand that. I mean, I'm sure there was support groups for that kind of affliction, but um, she had to leave me. And she still loved me, but she couldn't be with me. You know, which, which was the healthiest thing that she could have Absolutely. done for both of you. Yeah. So, yeah, that thus started my uh, my love affair with uh, free base cocaine, and that lasted eighteen years. I mean, I somehow. When did you jump over to crack? Um. Well, well crack became that was in uh, that was in nineteen eighty. 80, 88, 89, 89, 90. Yeah, crack really swung in big time. And we went from cooking it up in 87 and 88. And another girl I was living with had to leave me because I was going to the clubs. We were drinking and I would bring home cocaine and cook it up and smoke it. And she said, you know, I can't be with you if you're going to be keep doing this. And I kept doing this. And then, and then she left me. So it was another girl. Give me, how long typically would you be up on a cocaine run for? It was, it was funny in the, in the, not funny, but it was peculiar or interesting in the, in the eighties, my longest I would stay up would be one night and then I would be coming down. Um, and I could still make it to work. I would get high. I would stay up all night and drink and I would still be able to make it into work. And in 91, when I got into a support group for that, um, I got a couple of years clean and then went out and spent, then I would spend three days up with no food, no water, just drinking, um, excuse me, just smoking cocaine. And um, then from there, it escalated to five days up, six days up, seven days up, just smoking, no, not drinking water, very little water, no food, and smoking cigarettes and smoking cocaine and doing crazy sexual things. And an alternate reality. I have no idea how I, how I survived because the human body needs a certain amount of water before you you dehydrate and die. I maybe drank just enough to just enough so my heart didn't stop. And of course, I would experience dramatic weight loss as a bodybuilder and a guy who was really lean anyway. I would I smoked away my body weight, my muscle, probably ten or eleven or twelve times, and started over. Sold my car. For, for crack cocaine and started over with with nothing, probably at least eight or nine or ten times where I'd get a bike and I would get into a halfway house, ride a bike looking for a job, get a job, buy a cheap car, drive a cheap car, you know, finally get another place. I did that probably eight or nine or ten times where I smoked my whole life away, all my guitars, the car, smoked the car, smoked everything, and went from 180 or 190 pounds looking great to 140. And um, I had it down. You know, the trick was I had to give two weeks, let your heart rest. You couldn't work out after a crack run. But I, I remember being up for six days, seven days straight. I have no idea how I survived it. But my trick was let rest for two a week or two, don't exercise, just start eating. And once I got clean... 
And after, I think you should write a book after yeah, two pipe weeks. to pump. <laughs> yeah, after two weeks, <laughs> then I could start working out. Yeah, <clears throat> and my muscle memory within within four, three to three or four weeks, I had my body right back in top shape again. Right back. So you it. fooled yourself into thinking this is not unmanageable. I just need to come in from the storm. Oh God, no! I I think I knew it was un, it was man, yeah. it was man, unmanageable. It's just <clears throat> I just I just somehow escaped death, and there's been a number of things that have happened I, before I moved to California. Well, I came back from California and brought my addiction with me and moved in with a girl named Joni, and she had to leave me because I wouldn't stop, and. Uh, I my, didn't have a place to live, so I lived with my grandmother, my dad's mother, who my my grandfather had passed away, and he was a he was a dean of the Detroit School of Law, and he was a, a heavy guy. He worked with presidents, and he was he wrote books on law that are in libraries, and he was he was quite a guy. She he had passed away. She was living alone, and she had this pristine 1973 Ford LTD two door. So these it was a very long, heavy car with big long doors. And you know what I'm talking about, like mm-hmm. the kind you used to drive around in the streets of San Francisco. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. And um, it was a pristine, this thing was just mint condition. And here I was, just shorts, no shoes, no shirt, drunk, had been drinking all day, driving down the freeway about 70 miles an hour to get a rock, because once I've been drinking, mm-hmm. need a rock, and had drifted over in, in the lane, and I was about four inches away from the car next to me. <clears throat> I looked over, <clears throat> and I jerked the car back tore away from that car, Started fishtailing and fishtailing back and forth and then end up rolling the car at 70 miles an hour, rolling it. Rolled three, four times and skidded to a stop upside down. And I was just no seatbelt, no shoes, no shirt. You know, I could have, most people are thrown from the car. They, they get thrown out the window or they're crushed. I just stayed right in the middle, had a little cracked rib, had a laceration on my leg. And the car stopped upside down, caught fire, and I crawled out of the car upside down and crawled over to the side of the freeway. And there were about four or five lanes of headlights all just shining right on me in this burning car and me sitting on the side of the freeway. And the ambulance came, took me away. I never know what happened to my grandma's car. I guess it went to the to the impound and went. it was totaled. It was, it was burning. It was totaled. And went took me to the hospital, gave him a fake name, got... Stitched up. All I had was some stitches on my and why leg. Why a fake name? Because you were drunk. And that, and I didn't have insurance, and I didn't know how to pay for it. And I gave him a fake name because they could have got me on DUI. And I remember my father coming to pick me up, and he didn't say a word. He looked at me in disgust, and he didn't say anything. My grandma's car was gone. I was calling those nine seven six numbers at her house, talking to girls on the phone, you know, for sex talk, and running up her phone bill. And my dad found that out, and he said, "You got to go." And so I was just useless. He he bought he arranged for me to go to an apartment. I got this apartment, um, went from job to job. Was was a this was I was I think I was twenty eight years old, and I became a sacker at the grocery store when I used to have sack. I was a sacker. Uh, I got fired because I was of my anger. I was at the payphone slamming the receiver against the payphone. I broke the phone. Somebody that worked there saw me and reported me, and I got fired. I was a cook at Holiday Inn. Um, I quit that job New Year's Eve because I wanted to drink. Um, finally, my sister came back, and she had gotten the inheritance, and she had um, she came back, and she flew me out to California. This was in 1990. 
And um, it was just insanity because this was before the house the, in Laguna. She was living in these really nice places in Laguna with Uncle Bob, really high-end apartments and houses and townhomes. And um, never gave me a key. I'd have to knock on the door to be let in and ended up throwing me out. <clears throat> and uh, I went to um, this place called... Uh, Paradise by the Sea. It was in Laguna Beach, run by a guy named Father Colin, and he was a he was a father. And this is how I know I'm an addict. Can I say that? Mm-hmm. This is how I know I'm an addict because Father Colin had one thing, and he said, "You just can't you can't get loaded. I'm going to drug test you. You're going to pee in a cup for me, and as long as you don't do drugs, you can stay here for free and you can eat." And it was right it was right on PCH, right in Laguna Beach, and I could not stop. I went down from. Paradise by the Sea, walked down to to the to uh, Heisler Park in Laguna to Main Beach, knew how to score cocaine in the bathroom at Main Beach, scored a little $25 paper of cocaine, snorted it, went back to um, my little room at Father Collins' place, stared at the ceiling all night long, trying to, you know, mm-hmm. come down and peeing in a cup the next day and getting kicked out. When when I, All I had to do was just not do coke, and so I could stay there. And that's how I know I'm an addict, because... Father Colin, you know. And so what happened to me was was I met somebody at a Cinco de Mayo party. It was a woman who was seven years older than me, and we were both been drinking, and uh, we hooked up, so to speak, and um, she lived in North Hollywood. Now, I'm, I'm a beach guy. I live, in, I live in the beach. I skate and surf. And she lived in North Hollywood, and she drove me back to North Hollywood for that night, and we spent the night together, and I, I just didn't never left. I moved right in. I became this installed boyfriend. That's how I did things. And so that's how I ended up coming to the Valley. From There's really nothing in your life in moderation. <laughs> I mean, it is all or nothing, <laughs> at least what you have described so far. And obviously, you know, for us addicts, yeah. that's pretty typical. But, yeah. oh, my God. Share if you can, because you're, you're sharing a lot of the external stuff and a lot of the situations. And while I do want to know that stuff, I also want to know, like, internally, what was going on with you then? Your thoughts, your feelings, oh, how you viewed horrible. yourself, how you viewed the world. It was horrible. It was horrible. Talk about that. I was I was in this apartment with the girl. She had a two-bedroom apartment, and um, I was smoking crack when she was at work, and I felt so low because I would knew that she was coming home at 5 o'clock or so, and I would go drink some beer and, and sober up and... And just act like nothing happened, and just day after day after day like that, I felt I felt <laughs> just lower than whale shit. You know, you are a coke addict when you're like, I got to sober up. Where's the beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she was okay with drinking, and she smoked a little pot, and she was high functioning. She was, you know, successful, and so I would have a few beers and pretend like nothing nothing happened, and I was able to do that, and. I hadn't yet had my, you know, two day runs. I would just do it when she was gone, mm-hmm. and I and the feelings I felt so worthless, feeling completely worthless, not working, not uh, contributing anything, and using this woman for a place to live and a meal and smoking crack when she was gone. Um, what were some of the things that you told yourself? I told myself um, that it's going to be okay. I'm going to get a job, and I ended up, I ended up. Joining the Navy. Your story <laughs> is 
I would hate to have to flowchart your story. <laughs> I ended up joining. There's the not enough markers in the world to flowchart your story. <laughs> I ended up living with her, joining the Navy, yeah. and uh, that. If you want to hear about that, there was a whole story about that. But I felt so low about myself that uh, I had done some collection work as a collector, a phone collector, and I had gotten a job as a collector. It didn't last very long. I got in a fight with the with the the manager. And I got my check, and I was walking down the street. And I looked down the street, and I saw, that looks like a drug neighborhood. So I walked down there, and it was, and I got a rock, and I went back, and that's how I, where I scored the rocks. I, I would have no car. I would ride the bus over to Blythe Street, Blythe and Van Nuys. There's a McDonald's there now. Mm-hmm. But it used to be the Blythe Street gang. And, you know, white guys didn't go in there. There was There were murders. There was all kinds of, the Blythe Street gang was one of the biggest gangs in L.A., but somehow they they didn't kill me. I, would, I walked in on a daily basis. I'd get off the bus. I'd walk in. I'd buy my rocks, and I'd I'd walk back out, and they, they just left me alone. And um, I felt lower than whale shit. I, I felt like there was no way I could stop, and I didn't have anything to live for. So what so what changed for you? What What helped it turn around? I think especially internally the what what helped just being uh being in the company of others with whom the problem had been solved if it weren't support for, group people yeah, if it weren't for others yeah because but f- being as feeling as low as I felt um and and you know, seeing everyone else driving around in cars with jobs and, no, and just getting ejected from the Navy and, and going back to crack, uh, it was extremely hard. But somehow I, I made it through and um, met the guy who was to give me a place to live and spoon-fed me the right information. And support group information, yeah. just healthy information, spirituality, and and the correct way to think, you know, because my thinking was was skewed. And, he, and this guy loved me. He he loved me. He he showed me love where I never have ever experienced that because I had two parents that didn't know how to do that. Can that, you can you be more specific about what the love looked like and felt like yeah, and what form it came in? It was it was somebody not trying to make me feel bad. Somebody. Because my father always pretended like he didn't like me. He he loved me, but he never let me know, and I was scared of him. And so I remember I got bit by a spider on my back when I was in seventh grade, and they came to pick me up. The whole family was in the Pinto. And when I got in the car, I was I was sure I was going to get screamed at. And my father said, you got had a bad bite, huh? And I said, yeah, I had a bad bite. And I was just sure that he was going to just start in on me. So this this love came in the form of, of of being accepted as a human being, and not not being belittled constantly, and not being hit anymore. And so he loved me and showed me what love was. And uh, it was really cool because he was a m- music producer, and me being a guitar player and stuff. I had I think I had 15 years in as a guitar player at that time. And he had an artist that he was doing an album for that lived in a house in the back house. And I met this other guy who was who was a genius. And he was now he lives in Nashville and he's he's a big thing. He's a big big deal now. But he was a big deal then. But uh, he was a staff writer at, at 
um, Warner Brothers Records, and JC was, or my friend JC was doing his album, and I was, in, and then I met him. Mm-hmm. And I remember JC. Yeah, and JC, and it, uh, if I can say Phil Brown, Phil Brown is one of the greatest guitar players ever. Amazing, amazing yeah. guitar player. You know, you know him. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's. If you look him up on Spotify, you can hear him. Yeah, he, and he uh, he played with uh, Little Feet. He's brilliant, and. Yeah. So they were doing an album in the studio, but Phil was a master at recording himself. So he would he would do the we. It was back when the eight tracks you bounced everything over to free up the tracks. You bounced it mm-hmm. over, and everything was on cassette. And so he he influenced me. And when I when when I got two years clean, JC said it's time for you to fly and do your thing, and it's time for you to go. And I I had my own little studio and a little four track and did what Phil was doing and learned how to do it and bounced everything over and it you know so I learned how to do that. And by the way, uh, J.C. was the guy that wrote the song, Green Eyed Lady, right. Lovely Lady. He was, boop, he was that guy. Boop, that, boop, 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 boom, One of the best bass lines ever. One of the best rock anthems ever, ever recorded. Yeah. This will be on the on the greatest hits album of all time. It will yeah. still be there. Yeah. Was it the Ides of March? Who was the band? I can't remember. Um, it was Sugarloaf. Are you sure? Green Eye Lady was Sugarloaf. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So J.C. wrote it with Jerry Corbetta from Sugarloaf, but J.C. lived off that song, basically. But J.C. loved me, and that was the first time I'd experienced love and not being belittled or hit or beaten. uh, It sounds like he saw the real you and said, you're enough. Yeah, he, he You're lovable yeah. as you are. Because he, lo- he had this thing about of birds. He loved birds. He had a parrot. He had this whole aviary with birds. He had chickens out, on, out walking around. He, did, he just loved birds. I didn't know anything about birds until I met JC. But he called me Charlie Bird. So I know he loved me because he loved birds and he called me Charlie Bird. Yeah. So um, eventually my sister, if I may, she... Mm-hmm. And my sister shows up. My wife had just left me mm-hmm. and I totaled my car and I just started this job as a telemarketer because I couldn't find a job because mm-hmm. I have tattoos and I have all those misdemeanor battery convictions mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't find a job. So I was going to start starting as a telemarketer. So I had to get up and be a telemarketer. And I, I was so distraught and I was so my nerves were just so raw that I couldn't let my sister stay. I, sh- I should have opened up my home because I did before. I got the call the next day from my dad that my sister had passed and we weren't shocked. I mean, she was... Mm-hmm. She, it was terrible. And go ahead. Um, when somebody dies that way, they have they have to. The state demands an autopsy. So my friend in the support group took me down to the corner to get her car and her effects and to identify her. And um, and so you had to identify your yeah, sister. But this was after the autopsy. And yeah. when you when someone on the streets or in a motel or whatever, someone has the st- drug addict has an as a uh, a drug related death and do an autopsy. Um, well, my experience is they treat you like a piece of meat. I mean, she was you never. First of all, for anyone listening, you never want to see a loved one after an autopsy. You never want to just mm-hmm. don't do it. And apparently, they had laid her on her face and cut her open from the back because her nose was all smushed down on her face. Her nose wasn't the same. And my sister always had these beautiful green eyes. And I would always use that line when I was a younger man. I would use that line, you have pretty green eyes just like my sister. Mm-hmm. You know, My sister had, had great eyes. And I wanted to see those eyes again. You know, And she was all 
wrapped up and I couldn't touch her. She was all cut up and, and her nose was flat and, and she hadn't been embalmed. She was just mm -hmm. after an autopsy. She was just dead, been dead for about five days. And I opened one of her eyes to see those beautiful eyes and they were not the same. They weren't, they weren't the same anymore. And I'll never forgive myself for that. I should never have done that. So I spent some Wait, time stop, with her. Stop, stop, stop right there. Never forgive yourself for what? For for looking into her eyes, for opening her eyes, Charlie, that was a beautiful moment. I wanted to see them, and they were they were all spotted. That's, they were covered in spots. Charlie, every person listening to this right now is thinking that is the sweetest gesture that you wanted to see your sister's eyes. Yeah, I wanted and to how see you her could eyes. take that and turn and it against myself. Turn it yeah. against yourself. I mean, that was like the sweetest gesture. Well, you know where I got that is from my dad because my dad said I should never have done that and I got what I deserved. He didn't say I got what I deserved, but, you know, I was, I was really upset after that. And he said, I don't, I'm not surprised and, you know, you should never have done that. You shouldn't have even gone to see her. And, you know, he just shamed Fuck me. Fuck your dad. But, but, Fuck your dad for that. I mean, your dad sounds like a really sick guy. Well... I had to I had to spend some time with her, you know, so I did. And then she was all cut up and wrapped up and I spent time with her. I spent time and a song came out of it. I, I got this song out of it, but it was I, I don't think I should have gone because that's that's the last image I have of my beautiful, extraordinary, uh, passionate sister who lost all her passion from the disease of alcoholism. It all went, and she was just existing, and she had nothing. And it was, it was extremely hard to, to, to see that, to see her like that. Let, let's have the, the, the next thing, and I think we'll wrap up after, after this. The recovery from, from rage? Yes. Yeah, let's yes. go there. Um, I was hopeless, and can I say that our interaction together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was hopeless, and you had sent me to your doctor, who got me on some medication. My psychiatrist that yeah. helped me. It helped me sleep. It actually helped my life. But I continued to act out, and I continued to rack up battery charges. I had, I have, I have six battery convictions. They're all misdemeanors. And um, that's not in counting the ones I got out of because I, I learned how to get out of them. I, I knew how to get out of them. And I had one where my girlfriend, she was sober. Mm -hmm. She gave me up to the police and said, well, I have to be honest in all my affairs. So I mm -hmm. gave you the police your name and number. <laughs> so they were calling but, me. But, but it wasn't her who you had. No, it wasn't no. her. It was, okay. We were just at a concert and somebody okay. got in my face and stuff. But mm -hmm. um, where was I? Oh, the, the recovery from rage. Yeah. Um, I was hopeless, and you had helped me, and I continued to rack up batteries. And the uh, what saved me? This is what saved. This is what turned it around for me. Is moving in with somebody, an alcoholic woman who was being racked by the disease through uh, eating disorder, through spending disorder, through uh, opiate disorder. She would spend money on things that she had no business buying. So many pairs of shoes, so many shirts. You, I could just see that she was, and her mother was paying off the credit cards. So she was just in this codependent thing. And she was buying stuff that she had no business buying. She had so much of everything. She, it was just a pure addiction. But this woman would say things to me just to hurt me. And she would, she would say things 
to hurt me because she was that's what she does she hurts the people that she loves and it used to i used to uh, freak out and like throw bottles into the tv sets and grab a television and throw it across the room and grab her and shake her up and and pull her hair and, and i used to do things just to get back at her for being so mean and after i got out of jail when when i went to jail for domestic violence i realized that we we moved back in together and she continued to try to hurt me because that's what she does. But this was, she was just a roommate to you? No, right? we were back together. We were back together, oh, husband and wife. The, oh, the woman, the coma yeah. wife. The we coma were, wife. The coma wife. Yeah, I had a, I had a domestic violence. and I the, grabbed, She's the one you pushed through the door. She's the one I pushed through the door bumped and she bumped head. her head on yeah. the way out. And mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, but I being married to an addict that would do anything to hurt me is what, is what, made me grow up because I finally grew up and I finally realized that this person is saying these things and it's not about me. She's saying these things and it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with her and, and her evil mother that she still was using for support and had a huge, t terrible enmeshment with. You know, she should have been broken free from that, but she had an enmeshment with this terrible mother who, mm -hmm. and, and she would say anything to hurt me. And who... I just couldn't, it was just so over the top that I realized that this, that she was saying things to me to hurt me and it was nothing to do with me at all. Nothing. It had all to do with her. Oh. So I learned how to say, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm going to go over here now. And I would, I, I just stopped reacting. I stopped uh, yelling. I stopped everything and I just stopped i just stopped where did you learn that i learned that while i was living there with her when she was trying saying mean evil things and she ignored me not only but, she, but who had taught you this or did I, you just I, pick it up on I your picked own picked it up i picked wow. it up on my own that's a big I said, leap i said me me going against her and yelling back at her and throwing things at her and, and breaking tvs isn't isn't helping i've got to find well, something well, else it depends on what was on tv <laughs> it wasn't helping okay. so i i devised this thing i said look i've just got to realize that it's not about me i've got to stop reacting i've got to let it go because it's not about me it's about her it's her opinion and she will say anything to hurt me i had the cd of me speaking and i was a good speaker and then she threw it at me and said you're not a good you're not any kind of speaker you're she just would do anything to hurt me so i realized it's not about me and what I did with that is I transferred that out into, into the real, into the world. And I realized that the guy that was tailgating me, who I used to, I used to have a system when someone tailgated me, I would slow down. They would try to go around me. I would move over so they couldn't go around me. And that would just freak them out. And then they would get so angry that we would pull over and I would get out and I would bang on the window or they would get out. We'd have it. We'd have a fist fight. But I transferred that. It's not about me to driving to the guy who was tailgating me. He doesn't know me. It isn't personal. Exactly. It's not personal. So I learned to not even, I had a world of road rage. I had nothing but road rage. I learned just to let it go and to not even look at them when they drove, when they passed me. Because if I'm, if I'm, I'm going to keep going to speed them, but they want to tailgate me, they eventually go around you. And, and I, I learned not to give them the look. I learned not to give them the finger. Yep. I learned it's not about me. It's not. And so I, I take that into the world. And whenever somebody does something to me because I treat everyone with respect now and I, and I keep my side of the street clean. I treat everybody with respect. I treat everybody nicely. If someone doesn't like me and has a problem with me, I know it's not about me. It's their opinion. It's not about me. So I've, I turned that whole world of rage around 
And now I find strength, and this is going to sound corny, but I find strength in being patient. I find strength in knowing when to say I'm sorry when, when I'm wrong. And I find strength in being able to, uh, to forgive other people. And the forgiveness is the hardest one because forgiving, we can forgive for a minute, but then we want to take it back and not like that person mm-hmm. uh, again. So the forgiving is being forgiving is hard, but it's in it's in it's in a book I read that says though people who offend us may be spiritually sick, though we don't like their symptoms, they like us were perhaps possibly spiritually sick. Mm-hmm. So I, I took that into the world. The driving is completely a whole new thing for me mm-hmm. because it's not about me. They don't know me. It's not personal. So here was this guy. He didn't want to stop. He didn't see me, so he almost hits me. So I, I, I get by, and he stops just enough to let me by, and then he guns it right, right behind me. And then I, I, my mistake was I, I went to old behavior, and I looked back. I gave him the look. I, I should have just ignored it, but it was such a close call that I looked back, and I gave him that stink eye look. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, you got something to say? And then he kept going. And I, I stopped the bike, and I, I did something that I don't do anymore. And I, I slipped up, and this is, this is a mistake. I said, well, maybe I have something to say to this guy. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to hit him, but I, I, I wanted to be right. Yeah. It was that need to be right, which I've learned not to do. It's a state of insanity. I want to be yeah. right. You wanted to change him. Uh, I, yeah, or to let him know. Yeah. yeah. So I, I said, maybe I have something to say. So I, I, I rode my bike where he went, and I found his car. And he had pulled over in front of the uh, dry cleaners. Yeah. And his father got out. And so I pulled up, and I said, hey, remember me? And his father got out of the car and came around with a handful of shirts and clothes to be dry cleaned. And he said, I'm the father. What's, what's wrong? And I said, well, wait a minute. You're not the one behind the wheel. He is. And he said, no, I'm the father. Meanwhile, the driver is this 23-year-old guy, unshaven, and going berserk, going berserk, screaming, yelling, calling me every name in the book, saying he's going to get a baseball bat out of the, out of the thing to get out of his face, get out of his face. I was about 20 feet away from him. Mm-hmm. Get out of my face, get out of my face, I'm going to get a baseball bat. And, and he was just screaming, yelling, and, and the father was saying, I'm the father. I'm going, to, I'm going to handle this. And I said, I leaned into the father, and I said, how did he get that way? This is the God's honest truth. I looked at the father because the father was obviously taking responsibility for this mm-hmm. kid. He said, he said, I said, how did he get that way? And he said, he just came back from Afghanistan. He's been killing people and he thinks he's a killer. He can't get over it. And, um, the, the, the guy gunned it and just took off. And the father was, I was standing there with the father with the dry cleaning clothes and he said, Oh no, he's going to leave me. And what happened was he, he went down the way and he turned and he's parked. And I looked at the father and I said, God bless, God bless. And I got on my bike and I rode. And as I passed the car, I didn't stop to, to apologize. I didn't stop to say anything to this kid. There was, there was nothing I could do for this, this person. There's nothing I could do. I'm sorry what it just, I don't know. But I just kept riding. And that was my last mistake. And it was, it's been a long time since I've done that, since I've taken anything personal. Mm-hmm. Because being on the bike, you know, people don't want to stop for you. And I've, I've, I forgive people all the time. You have to forgive. And I see people, they're going through the crosswalk. They get all upset because mm. cars don't want to stop. And they give them the finger and they start yelling. And I've talked to people in the crosswalk. And I said, look, you just got to let it go. You can't let, let it, it go. You can't let it bother and you. And you were able to have empathy for that kid. Yeah. Who, I assume, you have empathy for that I, I did. For he, that kid. He was going through one of the worst cases of post-traumatic stress syndrome I had ever seen. And so that was my last you know, last mistake, but it was a big one. And 
I've just learned not to take things personal. And what it took for me, I grew up. And now I'm able to have adult conversations with people about things and, and stay adult. And you would not believe how many people are unable to do that. I was working in a, in a nice big company with a, with a manager who I, want, I, I tried to have those adult conversations. And he wouldn't. He, could, he would just go straight to ranting. He would just go straight to, um, to raising his voice, cutting me off, talking over me. And I said, but wait a minute. I'm trying to have an adult conversation. He says, no, you're not. You're, you're, I'm sick of arguing with you. I said, I'm not arguing. I'm standing here calm and trying to have an adult conversation. So I've learned to have those adult conversations where you keep keep your tone down. Yeah. You have an adult Don't con- escalate. No, you don't escalate. You say the things you want to say in a non-hurtful manner where yeah. nobody gets upset. You would not believe how many people can't do that. It just fries their brain. And and the great thing is is that you're not the person doing that anymore. I'm not the person person doing that. I finally, I don't know how it, but I think it was being married to somebody who was that sick and that eaten up by the disease of addiction, seeing her try to hurt me so many times and the length that she would go just to hurt me for no Mm -hmm. reason because she was hurting. So I I finally grew up and and now I wouldn't think of putting my hands on anybody. It wouldn't cross my mind. And I hit the heavy bag. I do boxing. I I hit the bag. I've got, you know, I know how to fight, but... I would never even think about doing that to somebody because I finally grew up. It finally happened, you know? Buddy, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story, being my friend. Thank you uh, for all you've done for me. You're somebody that from day one uh, was into service work and helping people from the start of when I met you. And I have seen you before get completely vulnerable and have no self-pity whatsoever and be completely in the solution. And that is a shining example for the people around you who are suffering from the same malady. Well, let, let's wrap this up before you, know, before you start listing the bad things about me. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but no, but thank you for all you've done, too. I love you, Charlie. I love you, too. Oh, man, I am going to miss him. I'm going to miss him. I hope that gave you a sense of, uh, of Charlie and, uh, a great example of a complex, lovable human being and, and how difficult it can be watching, uh, someone have their ups and downs and, and, and being powerless over whether or not that person stays sober or stays out of jail or, Whatever it may be, but love you, Charlie. Uh, and so now I'm just going to um, continue with the uh, the rest of the episode uh, from when I did it with uh, Charlie. And we'll see you with a brand new episode next week. I got an email from somebody uh, that brought up a really interesting topic. And it was, how do you know when... Something is your issue or the other person is really being annoying. And I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially, you know, wanting to know whether or not your resentment is justified. And I wrote back and I said, um, I don't think the other person, um, their flaws need to uh, be figured into your resentment. You know, just, just because someone is flawed doesn't mean it's healthy to hang on to that resentment because um, it's not about determining 
necessarily who's right uh, as much as it is about letting go of the negative emotions. Um, you know, that's not to say that you shouldn't say, hey, you know, what was the appropriate thing that was done by you or to you? Um, but for me, the real thing to, to try to get out of examining something is what feelings were brought up in me by this conflict or <laughs> passive aggression or what whatever it is. And for me, what I usually look to get from it is clarity on seeing something in them that I also have in me. And that helps me have compassion for them because I can't judge somebody when I truly know I share the same flaw that they do. Um, and that, for me, releases the, the anger. Because uh, then I'm, I'm reminded of how many people gave me a, a, a wide berth when I was stepping all over people's toes and just oblivious to how selfish um, and hurtful I could be. Uh, you know, it's really... It's really about getting to what the fear is underneath the situation. Because when I'm scared, man, that's when my flaws flare up. And it's usually just like the person I'm resenting. And there's a saying in support groups that if you spot it, you got it. Now, that's not true all of the time. But for me, about 90% of the time, if I really break it down, what I am hating on somebody for is almost always something that I hate about myself. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to go ahead and be a doormat, but tempering it with some degree of compassion for that other person helps me deal with the situation with moderation, diplomacy, and timing. Timing is huge. Sometimes waiting till the next day to say something can make all the difference in the world. So I hope that made sense. And if it didn't, you know what you're free to do. You know where to go do it. And you know which finger to do it with. <laughs> this is a happy moment filled out by Will. And he writes, I love, I love ones like this because they're so subtle. And Will writes, uh, raking the leaves in late November... It was a clear afternoon, and everything had a sort of glow about it. I had spent most of the day watching Portishead music videos and having discovered their music the night before. This was from years ago, he writes. Um, I felt like a lot of my discontent from the past year had just lifted off me, and everything felt really clear and beautiful. Words can't really explain it. Thank you. Thank you for that. I... Uh, I love moments like that. And, and and then part of you is like, why does this feel so good? Why is this, why do I feel better here raking leaves in my backyard than I did graduating high school? It, it, there seems to be no rhyme or reason. I think the answer is because you're not surrounded by a bunch of assholes when you're raking your leaves. That was mean DJ popping in. Mean DJ voice, turning everything negative. This is a shame and secrets survey um, filled out by a woman who calls herself Call Me Anything. And she is bisexual in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes, yes, and I never reported it. 
she writes, my mother had no sexual boundaries. She often walked around in, quote, long t-shirts with no underwear. Every time she bent over uh, or reached for something, her unshaven bush would be visible. Uh, she would also make excuses to be in the bathroom at the same time as you. She seemed to like watching people use the toilet and would also take uh, the occasional peek at you in the shower. She liked us watching her nude and using the toilet as well. She would use everything from, I'm just putting towels away, to, I just needed to ask you a quick question. She couldn't ever explain why she couldn't wait until she was finished using the bathroom to speak to us, or why the towel would sit folded on the downstairs table all day, and just needed to be put away at the very moment that someone was getting into the shower. When my brother and I were old enough to start locking the bathroom doors, we did. This led to many yelling fights for a week and the threat to remove the doors of the bathrooms if we continued to lock them. That is so fucked up. That makes my blood boil. And by the way, this is so common. And most people don't even realize it. Their body registers it. They feel angry and disgusted and unsafe when it's happening. But we have been, this is, a, this is a thing that is common. And I know so many people after I started sharing about the things that happened to me. And this is textbook. When, when mothers incest their children, this is the most common way that it takes place. And yes, this is incest. If you talk to any mental health professional who understands sexual abuse you don't have to touch your children to sexually abuse them and this is the classic way of of mothers doing it and dads do it too um but it it's usually it it gets onto somebody's radar a little more when it's a dad um because we don't think of mothers as being capable of doing this um continuing um, my father finally interve- intervened, simply saying there is no longer a rational reason for you to be going into the bathroom when they are using it. If the kids want to lock the door, they should have that right. God bless your dad. Her response was, well, who are they afraid is going to be walking in on them? Huh? Me? It's not like there is anything I haven't seen before. That's exactly what my mom used to say. We continue to lock the bathroom door. The walking around flashing her bush continues to this day. I'm 36. As an adult, I refuse to enter the house until she puts pants on. I also refuse to sit on anything in the house, and I don't eat there. You just can't get comfortable when it is feasible. Your mom's pubes can literally be anywhere on anything. I I would laugh if that wasn't so fucking sad um, because this kills children's souls. Well, I shouldn't say kills. It wounds them deeply. This, this affects their ability to trust, to be intimate with somebody. And, you know, I don't hate those moms or those dads that do that. I hate what they do. And I I don't know how many of them are conscious of what they're doing. I see them as sick. And 
it's really heartening to see that your dad st- st- stood in there and and advocated for you, you know? That and it's so awesome that you have set a boundary that you won't enter the house if she doesn't have pants on. That is that's huge. That's huge. And if the person who is uh, reading this wants to be connected, uh, who filled this out wants to be connected um, to some support I know of around this issue, um, contact me and I will talk to you more about it. Or somebody hearing this read is, and is like, oh my God, that is my story. Um, contact me through the website. To the question, have you been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, Yes, to both. My mother is an untreated borderline. When my brother and I were younger, she would make up imaginary offenses that we were to be punished for. She didn't believe in timeouts. She would categorize her parenting style as strict, but I have come to learn that is code for I beat my children. At the age of nine, my mother was in a rage and needed to get it out. Hitting us was the way she would relieve her aggression. She started to attack my seven-year-old brother. As she closed in on him, he started screaming at me to help him. I went a little mad. I jumped on her back and started to beat the hell out of her. I knew she was going to kill me, but the sense of panic and fear his screaming put me in. I think I reacted like a trapped animal. I was so terrified of what I had done, I wet myself. After my attack on her, she seemed shocked and very hurt physically. I think I scared her. She realized I had become physically stronger than her. My mother is under five feet and a hundred pounds. She didn't hit my brother or me after that, but the emotional abuse continued until we moved out. I have read so many surveys in the five plus years I've had these on the website where a, a parent is almost like snapped out of a a state when when a child fights back um and it never happens again and i'm not giving any kind of advice here to anybody it's more of an observation that it almost seems like it's waking them it's waking that person from some almost like a dream state where, where th- that they go into like a blackout, like an anger blackout. Um, I, I would love to see somebody do some research uh, on that because it's also interesting that then your mother continued to emotionally abuse you. And um, anyway, any positive experiences with the abusers? No, she has never shown me love, support, or kindness. I can't even recall a single memory of a good moment. Uh, darkest thoughts, killing her. I'm not ashamed of it. I think it's appropriate for the way I was treated and raised by her. I don't get a lot of understanding from people. Most people love and respect their mothers. Uh, Darkest secrets. I was crazy into BDSM until I had a therapist who told me it was common. Uh, Quote, most people fetishize their abuse. This crossed my fetish with my mother in my head. Now, when I try to fantasize about my fetish, my mother pops into my head and I go numb. It has killed my fetish and cured me of my mid-afternoon jack-off sessions. Darkest secret, when I'm jacking off, thoughts of my mother pop into my head. 
normal or not, this is not okay with me. It's very triggering at a time when I'm supposed to be enjoying myself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The standard BDSM scenarios uh, being dominated by a male or dominating a female. I also fantasize about laying naked in an empty grassy meadow with my partner, just laying in each other's arms, watching the clouds and just being. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? It's small, but I would like to give people small compliments if I could, like your hair looks great or I love your shoes. It's small. I know how sometimes a small compliment is the only thing getting you through the day. I would like to do that for people. Well, I wonder if you, it's not clear from this if you have, and if you haven't, I highly encourage you to do it because sometimes something little like that can also make my day if I'm the person that that gives the compliment because it reminds me that I am connected to other people. I do matter and I can be a vehicle for for love and goodness in in the universe. Uh, What if anything you wish for? To have been able to protect my brother better. If we are speaking presently, I would like to become whole. I would like to glue the pieces of me together so I can be a whole healed person. I really hope you contact me because I have some good uh, resources to suggest, um, especially the book uh, Silently Seduced by, um, why am I blanking on his name? Um, I was just talking with somebody uh, about it today, but it's, uh, it's a fantastic it's a fantastic book. I'm hearing great things about the book um, Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, my partner, therapist, and psychiatrist know all of it. I have shared in my thoughts and feelings uh, to my mother. She was a little surprised that my hate for her was so complete and raw uh, because she forgave her parents for their abuse and she had it a lot worse than I did. Uh, That's interesting that you shared it with your... uh, with your mom, but you didn't really say how she reacted to it, or maybe I didn't glean it from this. How do you feel after writing these things down? It was uh, triggering. I still hold a lot of hate for my mother. I know she is ill. The thing I can forgive her for is she knew it and knows it. She. I'll, I wonder if she meant can't forgive her for. Um, uh, she also has the means to get help. She doesn't want to um, because she slash we are not worth it. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You can fix them, take it back, or make it right. You can only, I think again she meant to type can't, uh, you can't fix them, take it back, or make it right. You can only keep yourself safe and give yourself time to heal. Any comments? Um to make the podcast better. I debated whether or not to read this because it touched me so much. And I figure with all the beating up I do of myself uh, on the podcast, it would uh, be nice to show that I can also take positive things in. And But I'm, of course, the part of me that is so worried of appearing um, full of myself. Uh I debate whether or not to, when people compliment me in the surveys or in emails, a lot of times I won't read that aloud, but every once in a while, I like to. And she wrote, 
Uh, you rock, Paul. Keep it up. I would like to send you a thank you. I fall into the serial killer slash murder documentaries when I'm down. I was looking for more audio material when I came across your podcast. After following you for a few months, I believed I would benefit from therapy. I'm a few years in. I've had great success with managing my PTSD and have been diagnosed with hypomania. I've been on meds for a year and haven't been more stable and happy in my life. I know you get thank yous and you've changed my life, but think of this. I am an unknown, random person in the world who heard your voice one day and it completely altered the path my life was on. That is such... um, Like when I'm having a really shitty day and I, I read something like that, it, it helps snap me out of, for one, it feels good, but two, it snaps me out of the sickness in my head, which convinces me it's, this is all about you. You're cut off from everybody. And that's one of the biggest lies our brains make us think is that we are this island trying to survive and and we're not i was at my support group tonight and my favorite support group and um somebody posed the question what brought you here you know what was the final straw that brought you here and when it came to me i said i knew that i was going to kill myself if i didn't and i didn't want to come But there was a part of me that knew I had more purpose in my life. And I didn't want to throw that away. And I didn't want my last minutes on earth to be filled with shame. And and I also shared that if I were to die tomorrow and was able to express any thoughts before it, knowing what was coming. A, after everybody had cleaned up the feces, I'd give them a nice hug, thank them for cleaning up the feces. But in all seriousness, yes, I would be scared, but I think I would feel peace about what I had done with my life. I would have wished that I would have started it sooner, but you know, we I I wasn't ready to see how much of an asshole I was and how selfish I was. And I couldn't see the abuse that was going on around me and the abuse that I was raised in. But if I hadn't gotten to the point that I knew I was going to kill myself and I didn't want to throw my life away, I wouldn't have gotten help. And if I hadn't gotten help, I wouldn't have been able to do this podcast. And if I hadn't been able to do this podcast, she wouldn't have been able to hear it. And she might have gotten to therapy eventually. But to me, that just shows how interconnected we all are. It's just on a scale that we can't readily see 
So we forget. I forget. Maybe I should just speak for myself. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, Am I Helping? And she writes, I couldn't decide if this would go in this category or the struggle in a sentence one. I'm a senior in high school and every senior at my school has to do a big project on whatever they want. I have in the past dealt with the basic high school starter pack, (laughs) anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. I wonder if there's a patch for that. So I thought of focusing my project on mental health. I had to interview a lot of people face-to-face for this project on their personal struggles. One of the people I talked to was a friend of mine. She was trying to say why she began cutting and was responding to the question, why don't you just stop hurting yourself? She said, it's not like you just stop. It's got a fucking futon in your mind. It'll sometimes just come, walk in, fold it down, and spend the night. You just have to deal. At that moment, we were both laughing at the metamor- at the metaphor she used about the dark topic of self-mutilation, but I couldn't relate to her more. Thank you for that. That's beautiful. Um, that's kind of really this podcast in boiled down into a sentence and uh, finally this is a happy moment filled out by um, a non-binary person who refers to themselves as uh, or themselves as hurricane kitten surprise and they are 16 and they write my family is hella stressed right now my dad just quit his job and money is getting tighter He's been gambling several nights a week lately. I've stopped asking where he's going. I haven't had a meaningful conversation with my parents or siblings in years. I don't feel like a functional part of the family unit. I'm not out to my parents, and I feel incredibly ostracized at times. So, understandably, I get tremendous anxiety when I found out that my dad and I would be traveling alone for three days during spring break. In particular, during the second night of vacation, my father took me out for a nice dinner and said he wanted to tell me something. I braced myself for the worst. He knew I was queer. He was getting divorced. He had a gambling addiction. The answer was nothing I could have predicted. He said he'd been dealing poker every week in order to set aside money for me to go to therapy if and when I needed it. Although I just replied with a quiet thank you, in my head I was forgiving him for every late night snarky comment and angry insult we had exchanged in the past year. We may not be perfectly functional, but we know how to love. I may not be perfectly whole, but I'm not wholly broken. Thank you so much for that. That, what I love about that too is it's such a realistic portrayal of what getting healthier looks like in a family it's never on the timetable we want it never takes the form we predict and so much of it is just about trying to be in the moment and be diplomatic without being a doormat and sometimes that's so hard but um what a lovely lovely moment i appreciate that um i hope you heard something in our episode that uh stuck with you 
I hope uh, I hope you heard something that brought you comfort. Um, I hope you liked hearing Charlie tell his story as much as I did. Like might be a weird word because some of it was so painful. And um, but my God, what what a spirit that guy has. And, you know, as I always like to say, I hope that if you're sitting out there listening and you think you're alone, you've realized that you're not and that there's hope because help is all around us. We just have to reach out and ask for it. And I'm so grateful that I did because now I have you people in my life. And, uh, It really makes my life beautiful. It really does. And I never thought I would hear those words coming out of my mouth. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.